So welcome to the room. If it is your first time here, uh, we just want to say that we've got this 10-minute party that's going to be going on after the service in the back. That's going to be your chance to get to meet uh, Pastor Jack or uh, one of our, our board members, somebody. Uh, but we want to hear your story. We want to get to know you a little bit more. We also have a free gift for you. Uh, it is the best kettle corn this side of the Grand Canyon. So good. That's, it's awesome. You can go home. You can watch your Netflix. You'll have something to eat for the next couple days all because you just went and hung out in the back for less than 10 minutes. So that's exciting. That sounds worth it, right? And if you're at home and this is your first time, uh, we don't want you to feel left out. So you can feel free to text the phone number 520-340-6868. Just text the word hello to that number. Uh, We'd love to connect with you as well. So we're going to send you a link. You just fill out some information. uh, And then at that point, uh, we'll get in touch with you as well. Um, So, yeah, not much to announce at the beginning tonight, so that's kind of nice to not have too many announcements. Uh, It's been a great weekend. We had a good time at the Roadrunners game. How many people made it out for hockey Friday night? That's right. I saw the Logans. They were there. Jim was there. He He had his jersey. I think Jim has a hockey jersey for every team from Denver except for the Avalanche. Because I've seen you wear everything but the actual hockey team's hockey jersey. I don't know how that goes, but... That's how it goes. So, um, yeah, anywho, let's all stand together. We're going to pray before we start service tonight. Uh, We're also going to pray for the church of the week. That's one of the things that we love to do around here is just that remembrance that Jesus is at work in Tucson, not just here at Elements, but at multiple churches. And we want to pray for a move of the kingdom to happen because there's a million plus people in this city that don't know Jesus. And we want to make sure that every single person gets an opportunity to hear the gospel. So we're going to pray for Oasis at Rita Ranch. Uh, That church uh, is led by Pastor David Ganey. Uh, And so this is a church, they're really into soul care. uh, And they've uh, been getting uh, money raised so that they can build a property even, so they're pretty excited about that. We're going to pray for them. We're going to pray for uh, your night here tonight as well, just our time together in worship. So would you join me as we pray? Father, thanks for this evening. Thanks for uh, the Oasis Church. Thanks for David Ganey, and thanks for just, uh, I know he's served faithfully here in Tucson for years, uh, teaching at the community college and, and doing so much. And so we thank you for their church. We thank you that you've been uh, at work at Oasis, that they've been growing, that uh, they moved from the middle school out in Vail into Empire High School, and they're already at a point where uh, they feel like they're trying to figure out what's next for them because they're, they're starting to max out some space. And so, God, it's clear that you're at work there. And we pray that you would continue the work, that you would help raise up the funds that they need and help them find the lender that they need so that they can get a building and get established out in Vail where they want to, Lord. Uh, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would move in and through them to be a blessing and to be a light to uh, the people of the Vail community and here in Tucson. And God, we pray tonight that you would be uh, on the move here at Elements. And just as we come to you tonight in prayer, it's so easy for us uh, as we gather as the church uh, to just sometimes check a box or to come because we need something from you, Lord, whether uh, we, we need some, some peace or we need uh, some financial help, whether we're struggling in an area and we need some healing in, in, in a place of brokenness. And yet, Jesus, tonight my prayer would be, yeah, it's okay for us to come for those things, but most of all, would we come because we just want you. We just want your presence. We want to be people of the presence who are marked by the presence of God going with and before and beside and all around them. 
And so you're already here, Jesus. You're already here and you're already at work. So would you begin to do the, the work to awaken our hearts to what it is that you wanna do tonight, what it is that you wanna say to us tonight. And so we lean into you. We lean into your arms of grace and mercy. And just now in this moment, help us to tune things out so that we can give you all of our attention, all of our affection, Jesus. We pray that you would be glorified as the name above every other name tonight. It's in your holy, your precious name that we pray. Everyone said together, amen, amen.
Father God, we come before you tonight in awe. We come before you tonight in awe of your nature and who you are. The fact that you are truly constant in a world of change. I don't know how many times I heard the word cancer this week. Some good, some bad. Gosh, it just reminds me of the ups and the downs that life tends to bring us, Father. And that like a beacon, like a lighthouse, Father, as the waves are ups and downs, uh, Lord, that we have a spot that we can rest our gaze, that we can rest our eyes. That in the ebbs and flows of, of maybe reds and blues of politics, Lord, we've got one kingdom that's been established uh, by your blood on the cross that we serve. So, Father, I pray that you would empower your church, that you would grow us to become more and more like your son Jesus, and that our eyes, our gaze would fix in your direction. So, Father, I pray that you would be with Lyle tonight as he shares your words. That your truths would find their way into our hearts, into our minds, and rest upon our soul. Transform us. So, Father, we worship you, the constant, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We glorify you, we worship you, you are so worthy of our praise. May you move in a great way in your people. Amen. Amen. I forgot to mention at the beginning, but we are going to take communion tonight. So as you were making your way in, uh, hopefully you got a chance to grab something from the tables that are there in the back. If you haven't, this is your friendly reminder so that you can head back there now and grab that if you need to uh, grab some for you uh, or someone else nearby. And for those of you who are tuning in at home, feel free to to grab what you have at home. Uh, if you've got some grape juice and some Ritz crackers, that's good enough. Uh, I believe Jack's even recommended for the video gamers out there that you can use your Mountain Dew and your Doritos. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> whatever is necessary. So, uh, we're in the middle of our series called Living Hope, where we've been going through the book of First uh, Thessalonians. We finished First Thessalonians last week. We're getting into Second Thessalonians tonight. So, uh, we're over halfway through it, because 1 Thessalonians is a little bit longer, but we're kind of transitioning into this next book tonight. So uh, as we kind of get started, just 
putting the sermon together, I was kind of thinking about uh, a TV show a couple of years ago that I was watching, and there's uh, a character in the show, he's kind of the bad guy, and he's one of those dot-com billionaires that, that started a company that's it's supposed to be like Google. And so everybody who, you know, who works for the company just follows him around. They're just a bunch of yes men, kind of always sucking up to the boss. And so uh, he's at some events where he's about to leave and get on a private jet and go to, I think he's going to like some spiritual retreat or something. But as he's leaving, there's like a, a table. Uh, they had the tea and like coffee and all that stuff out. And so uh, as he was making tea, he, he takes, the, you know, those little bears, the honey bears that have honey in them? Right, so he sets the, the bear down on the table, and then as he's leaving and being whisked away by his team, uh, he says to them, the bear is sticky with honey. Simple sentence, simple sentence, the bear is sticky with honey. And his point is, get a new bear. <laughs> and instead, because everybody looks up to this guy and thinks he's this wise guru, they're like, what is the coded message? What did he mean? The bear is sticky with honey. And so one of the, the entire like, episode, one of the story arcs is, all of his people who work for him are trying to figure out what this guy meant by the bear is sticky with honey. What was the message? What did they need to uncover? Uh, and so it just got me thinking about First and Second Thessalonians because the reality is uh, it's really easy to get wires crossed sometimes. Maybe you've had something. Um, wives, how many times have you communicated something to your husband and you were certain that they understood exactly what you said? And then in the moment when it came time for them to go do whatever it was that you had asked them to do, you found them somewhere else, whether they were sitting on the couch watching football. It, it's easy for the wires to get crossed. I'm sure my wife has her stories of the times that she asked me to do things, and it just it didn't happen. Uh, but what can happen is this with the crossed wires, is when we concern ourselves with solving things that we weren't meant to solve, it actually decreases our productivity in the things that actually matter. And that's the church in Thessalonica. That's the situation that the church in Thessalonica has found themselves in. Paul went to Thessalonica. He started this church with the help of Silas and Timothy. And after starting the church, uh, he was kind of driven out of the city pretty quickly because of the intense persecution that was taking place there. Uh, but while Paul was there to give the Thessalonians hope for their future, he spoke of the things that they should expect, the things that would come when, when Jesus was to return for his people and what that would look like. And clearly there were some crossed wires that took place because he spends both First and Second Thessalonians dealing quite a bit with end times. And so that's where we're at now. Uh, and as we jump into Second Thessalonians, uh, I love this statement uh, as I was reading a commentary. Uh, this just summarizes it so well. G.K. Beale said that God's people will not be judged but will achieve peace and God's glory if they are not deceived by false teaching about Christ's final coming. How do they do this? By standing firm in the truth of Scripture and not forgetting it. That's your theological emphasis of 2 Thessalonians. That's where we're going to be going over these next three weeks as we walk through this book together. And this Thessalonians series, it's kind of been interesting because the messages really do build upon each other. A lot of times in modern preaching, uh, typically your, your typical preacher is going to try to put a message together that has a little bit of theology, and then after they've given you some doctrine, uh, they go heavy on the application, because the reality is most of us are like, cool, that's what scripture says. How do I live that out? That's what we want to know. That's what we're really trying to do. Uh, and yet, in, in Thessalonians, it's a little bit difficult, because in both books, uh, there's a lot of teaching that Paul does. There's a lot of doctrine that really kind of requires some explanation. And once you get some of that explanation, then you might be able to pick out some application. And so 
so that's kind of the struggle tonight is because this is one of those sections uh, that we're going to be looking at tonight that really has a lot uh, of knowledge. It has a lot of doctrine that we have to grasp. And there's a couple of points of application, but really the way that Jack planned this whole series out, he gets the application next week in that section, and he left me with boring you all to death with a bunch of theology stuff, as if my five-minute nerd-outs weren't enough, right? Here's the entire mess. No, I'm kidding. We won't do that. But... Um, Peeking ahead, that's we're, we're, we're in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, so if you've got your Bibles and you want to start turning there, you can. Uh, and then all the notes will be in the Bible app as always. Uh, but uh, this passage that we're going to be in tonight, really what it does is it sets up a problem with a hint of a solution. And then next week is when Jack really gets to talk about the solution uh, of, of what Paul is saying that the church in Thessalonica needs to do in order to stand firm in the gospel truth and to be rooted the way that they need to be rooted. And so peeking ahead, here's your spoiler alert for the next two weeks. Um, here's kind of the, the main thrust of application. It's this, that we as followers of Jesus, as Christians, we must be rooted in historical Orthodox Christianity. And so two words there. There's orthodox. Uh, our orthodox, which that's our belief, that's our theology. Our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy. Orthopraxy, that means your application, your action. So our beliefs and our actions together, they should align with historical church practices. And that as we do that, it will allow us to endure to the end. That's what Paul's telling his people. That's what Paul's getting at in this passage. That it's not just about having knowledge of these things, though, right? Like you can focus on orthodoxy so much that you forget about what it is to live out the gospel. You forget about the orthopraxy side of things. And so what does the knowledge exist for? We get this knowledge within us in order to build a genuine love in our hearts for the Lord himself. We want to have a genuine love in our hearts for God and a desire to obey him. And so we seek to bring joy to the Father because we recognize that it's going to result in bringing our greatest joy. That's what the next two weeks is really going to be all about. And so if you have your Bible with you, we'll start reading in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, and so just before we get into that, I just said we would. What we missed in chapter 1 is this. Paul's just encouraging the church, stand firm in the midst of your persecution. God will be glorified in the midst of all of that. That's it. That's really what he says. So there's greetings. There's all the, the pleasantries that he exchanges. And then he's just saying, stand firm in your faith. Keep pursuing. It's going to be worth it. And then he starts to unpack what he does here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. That's the parousia that we talked about a couple weeks ago. That Jesus will appear in the sky, that we'll be drawn up with him, and that we get to come back down to the new heavens, the new earth. And so he says, now concerning the coming of Jesus Christ, of our being being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. And so we start reading here, and, and this is classic Paul. Paul loves to do this in his letters. Paul, I think, wrote in some of the longest sentences known to mankind. Has anybody ever read white papers before? 
one couple of you, most of you are like, what's a white paper? Paper's white, I get it. Like, no, uh, so when I worked for Apple every now and then, there'd be some new technology. And if we really wanted to understand the technology and what was going on under the hood, uh, all the engineers would write out kind of their stuff. And that would be in this document that would be called a white paper. And so it's just really, it's stuffed full of information. That's what Paul does a lot. He likes to give us these long sentences. And so we see a lot going on in these first three verses. And so that, what, what results is this. A lot of times we get this disconnect between what Paul is writing here and then how it's preached. Because Paul says this. He makes it pretty clear. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we're getting that in, the, in our minds. So concerning this event and us being gathered together with him. What's his purpose here? He says, we write to you so that you would not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Paul wants his people to have peace. That's Paul's goal here. He's preaching so that they would have peace in the moment, that they would have calm. He doesn't want them to be shaken in mind. He doesn't want them to be alarmed. And then he even says, either by spoken word, by spirit, by some letter that's pretending to be from us, that really isn't. And yet really what happens is when this passage gets preached, we skip right over the fact that Paul's saying, my goal in all of this is that you may have the peace of the Lord and that you may go about life calmly. And instead, we love to focus in on what's going to come next, because what he starts to refer to is this man of lawlessness. And so we get to the end time stuff, uh, and, and, and Paul is just trying to comfort the Thessalonians that when these final days come about, you have a hope and you have an assurance of victory through Jesus Christ. You don't have to worry about the things that are going to take place. And so for those of us today that look at what's going on in the world and we're shaken, it's easy to be quickly shaken. This letter is for us today. That we have a hope and a secure future in Jesus Christ. And as long as we read this passage faithfully and do the things that Paul's saying, we're going to be able to endure to the end. And yet because we hear the bear is sticky with honey, we start to read about the man of lawlessness and we're like, ooh, there's a code here and we have to figure this all out. And so we start to think about, hey, maybe this event ties in with this thing. And that's, that's fun, okay? Like, I get it. That's the sexy stuff that people enjoy doing because you can kind of theorize about it. It's not really fun to focus in on the revealed word of God all the time because when we focus in on that, we, act, we often see that we fall short. And so it's easier to just look at the stuff that's kind of nebulous and out there and be like, ooh, let's pray and let's try to get revelation on what this is all about. And guess what? God's word has revealed to us what we need to know for today, for this moment, and we need to focus on that. If we can get that right and we know that we've got that right and we're living that out in community, that's when we can start worrying about the other stuff. But until then, let's just focus on what's being said here. And so here's your two points of application. I know, we're 11 minutes into a sermon. Paul's already given them to us. So there's two imperatives here, which an imperative is it's a gramma, grammatical term for a command. So there's two commands in, that, in all these 12 verses that we're going to read. And we've already re read both of them in the first three verses. And so, again, here's your two points of application for those of you who love to have your points. It's this. One, don't be quickly shaken. Don't be quickly alarmed. That's what Paul says. When something happens that throws you off guard, don't worry about it. Jesus has it. You're going to be okay. Especially if it's concerning, right, because he, he qualifies this whole section concerning those days. At the end, when Jesus comes back, that's what he's saying. Concerning that, don't, don't be alarmed by anything that could happen, by anything that you see that you might even interpret to have anything to do with the coming of Jesus. Don't be shaken by that. What's the second point? Let no one deceive you in any way. Don't be deceived. 
And yet it's so easy for that to happen. This whole passage, it really applies to one thing, as we've said, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, our being gathered together to him. And so part of learning to read the Bible well is the fact that we have to look at the whole text and we have to see what it's saying and make sure that we're properly interpreting it so that we don't begin to apply the scripture in ways that it wasn't meant to be applied. How tragic is it that we're already seeing so many people who fall prey to this sort of way of reading the scripture. And so they'll take things that the Bible clearly doesn't say, that the Bible never said, that the Bible never hinted at, but they like to manipulate some grammar. Or maybe they manipulate a couple words. Or maybe they talk about, well, this translation was mistranslated. And they do this, why? Because they're attempting to deceive. Really what they want to do is they're already deceived themselves. And they're trying to justify their bad beliefs. And we've got to be faithful to the text. We've got to be faithful to God's word. Again, to the historical Orthodox Christianity. We, we have to be rooted in that so that we aren't deceived. So moving on in verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may, not, or so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. There's a lot going on there, a lot that gets said. But again, remember, the bear is sticky with honey, right? There's something that Paul's communicating here that we don't want to just try to rush in and try to figure everything out because we don't need to. We'll get to that. What he says at the very beginning there in verse 3 is really important here. He says, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And so that, that word that gets used for rebellion in Greek is actually the same word where we get the word apostasy. And so this idea of a rebellion is actually... Uh, in apostasy, meaning that there are those who have claimed faith in Christ, who have confessed that they believe in Christ, who will actually turn away from their faith and they'll leave it behind. That's the great rebellion, that there will be a great falling away of people uh, who make up the church, who, who claim to be a part of the church. And so Paul's warning people that you're going to start to see this take place. And, and what's Paul's approach to helping the Thessalonians though, achieve this goal of being able to have peace and calm? in the midst of watching this great falling away happen. And he gives that answer right at the beginning. Let no one deceive you in any way. Paul's convinced that deceit is at the root of their mental and their emotional disturbances. John Piper said this. He said that if we're shaken from our senses and lose our balance and feel alarmed and fretful and begin to act in ways unworthy of our call, it's because deceit has taken root somewhere in our minds. And there's so many of us these days, what is it, the, the, of, of those who are clinically diagnosed with forms of anxiety and depression, just adults, it's 40% of people right now or something. It's, it's 40 million people, I'm sorry, 40 million people. So it's like almost 20% of our population. The reality is there, there's a lot of us who've been shaken in our senses because we've been deceived and we've bought into that deceit and it's taken root in our mind. And it's caused us to stop seeing who we are in Christ, the victory that we have in Christ, the person that he has called us to be and living the way that God has called us to live. 
And we need to reclaim the truths of Scripture so that we can be the people that Jesus says that we are. And so moving on here, uh, Paul's telling the disciples, uh, or he's telling the, the Thessalonians that there, there will be uh, this man of lawlessness who will come. And so again, this is where a lot of preachers love to get into, like, the man of lawlessness is going to be Donald Trump, right? And the man of lawlessness is going to be, uh, you know, somebody from this place, or it's going to be this. Um, the focus isn't on the man of lawlessness, okay? Because here's the deal. Uh, Matthew 24, that's another passage where Jesus himself starts to unpack the end times, Jesus himself said that there are many who come in my name claiming to be the Christ. So we like to focus in on this antichrist idea from this passage in 2 Thessalonians. And yet Jesus said there's going to be many antichrists who come. John backs that up. 1 John 2, chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 18. He says that already many antichrists have come. And so there will be multiple people. We still see it in today's time that there are folks who come who claim to be Jesus or who claim to have uh, the ability to perform miracles or the ability to do things or that they have this special knowledge of when Christ uh, is going to come back because, hey, they're Christ and he's here. He's like, he's back, right? Uh, and, And it's not true. It's not happened yet. Why? Because the great falling away hasn't happened. All these things that Paul says, don't worry about it. It's going to be very public. We'll know when it happens. And so we don't have to worry about those who practice lawlessness. We don't have to worry about the man of lawlessness himself. Because Jesus himself wasn't even focused on the final predicted opponent of God. What Jesus was focused on were the false teachers who would seek to infiltrate the church. Because he knew that once they got into the church, if they were able to spread that deception, what would happen? People would fall away. We don't want to be those people, do we? We want to be the people who cling to Jesus and the hope that we have in Jesus and and know what we need to know so that we can endure to the end. And so Paul here is saying that these false teachers are already appearing, that they're beginning to uh, fulfill Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 24. And so it would be easy to feel alarmed. It would be easy to be shaken, wouldn't it, if you walked into a church and you heard just flat-out heresy being preached from the stage. That's not how heresy always works. You see, heresy, it usually takes a half-truth, and so it sounds just enough like the truth to where now it becomes uh, something that plants itself in your heart, and you start to think about it, and you start to question what you read, and you start to question these things until all of a sudden you don't know what you do believe, and all this confusion results. Listen, that's exactly what's taking place in the church today. That's why so many people have been deconstructing their faith and walking away from the faith, is because These half-truths that have come into the church that have been preached from the pulpit to lead people astray. And it's a tragedy. It's a great tragedy. And what's even more tragic is that we don't even know how to fight it because we don't know how to read God's word well enough to even test the spirits to understand that what they're saying is a false gospel. Man, it's already happening. We've already seen these things beginning. And yet, what's Paul's encouragement to us? Don't be shaken. Don't be alarmed. Why? Because here's the deal. What, what causes us that alarm? It's usually because we're caught off guard, right? Usually, we get caught unawares. And so, because it catches us off guard, man, we're just, we're not ready for it. And yet, we've We've got every reason to be ready to know what's going to happen here. That's why Paul has told us what he has is so that we could have peace and not be surprised when we see these things taking place even today. 
And so the question is, will we be people who hold fast to the hope that we have in the sure victory of Jesus so that we can live in peace? Or will we allow ourselves to become, as John Piper has said, mentally and emotionally unstable because everything looks like it's falling apart? The interesting thing about this passage, there's quite a bit of detail that Paul goes into about what's, what's happening here. Um, but what's also surprising is what he doesn't say. Because this passage really does raise a, a lot of questions, you know. Uh, looking at it, just verse 3, what, what, what's the rebellion? What's the falling away? Um, who exactly is the man of lawlessness? We'd all love to know that. What temple will he sit in? What or who is restraining his appearance in verse 6? Uh, this mystery of lawlessness that Paul refers to in verse 7. There's a lot of questions that you can ask. Because it, it is interesting that as much as we are given, we're still almost left with more questions than answers after we read this passage. But the key to understanding uh, why is, be, is, I think it's found right in the middle in verse 5. Because Paul says, uh, he's explaining the second coming of Christ, but then he, he just interjects that in verse 5. Don't you remember the things that I told you when I was there with you? And so we know that Paul only had that short time in Thessalonica before he was driven out. So it sounds like Paul, even in that short amount of time, was able to give them quite a bit of information. And so he passed along this information to them. And so this section, it's really just a reminder of what he spoke about before. And so if Paul didn't include it, it's because he knew that they didn't need to hear it. And if the Lord didn't preserve it for us to read today, it's because he knows that we don't need it ourselves. And so I know it's uncomfortable sometimes. The, the reality is we'd love to have all the answers, but we don't have them when it comes to this passage. But what we do have is this. What's the point of the text? Paul's writing it so that we may have peace in the midst of circumstances that are far outside of our control. And yet he's writing to give us a confidence that we stand on a sure foundation in Jesus Christ himself. And that we be rooted in that. And as long as we are, we'll be able to endure. And so we can spin our wheels. We can devote time. We can devote energy into unlocking the code. To figuring out what is meant by the bears. Sticky with honey. Or we can put our efforts into focusing on doing the things that God's word has made clear for us to do. So things like pursuing holiness. Like putting to death the sinful nature that's inside us. Like loving our neighbor like sharing the gospel of the hope that we do have in Jesus with those who are within our circle of influence. There are things in the revealed word of God that he has made clear that he wants us to practice. That's our responsibility is to do those things. We don't have to worry about the rest of this because if we do those things, we'll endure to the end and we'll see it as it happens and we're gonna come out okay. That's what Paul's saying. And while Paul may not tell us when or where these things are going to happen, uh, Paul does make it clear that all of it will be very public. And so even as strong as this man of lawlessness is, when he is revealed and when it becomes very clear what's taking place, what, how about the way that that finishes in verse 8? Like, come on, that's so good. What does Paul say? That he will be destroyed how? Because Jesus is going to come out and like knock him out? No. By the breath of Jesus himself. That's it. So the power of Satan and his lawlessness may be strong, and yet Jesus is infinitely stronger. Do you see that? A breath from Jesus is enough to knock out even the most darkest and evilest of forces. That's the God that we get to serve. That's the God that we are invited to know and to participate in a relationship with. That's where we need to put our hope and our trust 
Verse 9 uh, through 12, it says this, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one uh, it's, it's going to come with all signs and wonders in the power of Satan. But here's the thing that we need to see here. This coming of the lawless one, it's actually a satanic parody of the return of Christ. I don't know if you know this. Jack talked about this a few weeks ago. God's the one who creates. God can speak where there is nothing and suddenly there is something. Like for us, all we can do is take materials and we have to get things to make something new. And even then, it's probably already been made before. It's probably already been done before because Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new under the sun. That applies to Satan as well. And so God creates, Satan cannot. All Satan can do is produce a counterfeit. And so there's these satanic parodies you see happen throughout scripture. The whole point of a counterfeit is this. It has the appearance of being useful, but it's really just a cheap imitation. And so there's some examples in Scripture, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you read the book of Revelation, there's actually a satanic parody of that, a satanic counterfeit of Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. You've got angels. What's the satanic counterfeit of that? Demons, exactly. And so now here, uh, you've got signs and wonders as being something that's added to the list. What's the point of that? Why do we need to know this? Uh, It's because this man of lawlessness is not Satan himself, but he's coming in the energy and the power of Satan. And he's going to come with supernatural signs and wonders. And so this passage here, it's a warning to us today to not make signs and wonders the grounds for your faith. Don't make signs and wonders your criterion of truth. Because these signs and wonders are counterfeit, not because they aren't miraculous. John Piper says they have satanic power. They're counterfeit because they don't point to the truth. They don't point to Jesus. They lie. And so we cannot root our faith on signs and wonders. But you look at the people that Paul's referring to here, and he says that these people will refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And so how do we people... This is a very important question. They refuse to love the truth. So how do we, as followers of Jesus, love the truth in a post-truth culture? Wikipedia uh, talked about this word post-truth. Has anyone heard that term before? It started to be thrown around more. I see some nods, but not too many. Good. Teaching moment. All right, so... While um, this term was used academically and publicly before 2016, it really came about uh, because of post-truth politics. So that uh, wonderful election back in 2016 became so contentious that Oxford Dictionary um, made post-truth its word of the year in 2016. And so they define it as relating to and denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. And so, uh, have you ever heard the phrase, my truth? How often do we hear my truth being spoken on TV or in the movies? or uh, It's just, it's all over the place in our culture. My truth. That's what it means to live in a post-truth culture, that no longer do we look at objective facts and let that be what leads us forward. We go based on our emotions and our feelings, and we let that drive us to what we believe is truth so that we can define our own truth. 
And uh, ultimately, it reminds me of Proverbs 14, 12, which says there's a way that seems right to a man, uh, but its end is the way to death. Paul is saying here that there is one real objective truth that we all need to know, and that is the truth of the God-man who called himself the truth, Jesus Christ. And if you study philosophy at all, you can see how this uh, terminology has started to come about in our culture. And so uh, we're saving it for a little bit late, but don't worry. We've got a five-minute nerd out right here. We're going to nerd out on some philosophy, all right? Like I don't... I never liked philosophy, I'll be honest. And yet in the last year, I've seen that as I've started to study philosophy, it's one of the most important things that we can know. Because if we understand ourselves and how we think and the way we think and why we think the way we think, uh, then it helps us to combat uh, the areas where we can fall um, to some deception. Right? So that's why this is important. So just a couple of minutes here looking at the Enlightenment, looking at modernism, and how that led to postmodernism. And so how many of you have heard of Descartes? Descartes was famous for saying, I think, therefore, well done. See, you already know a little bit of philosophy. So Descartes came about, uh, and he was one of the the fathers of the Enlightenment is what that period was uh, called. So it was kind of the 1600s and 1700s is when it really started to come about. Uh, But ultimately, philosophers back then were asking the question, how do we know the things that we think that we know? Like, how do we know that we know that that thing is correct? And so it was this search for truth. And so they would write all these things uh, trying to uncover what truth was and how we knew that. And so that's called uh, epistemology. That's the study of learning. Uh, So these guys uh, developed these epistemologies so that they could see how do we learn the things that we learn so that we know that we actually know the things that we know. Are you following? That's a lot of no's. I get it. That would have been really funny if you yelled out no right then, but it's all right. Missed opportunities. You'll get it next time. So, uh, so Descartes, um, there's a bunch of, uh, of guys came about in, in that time frame of the Enlightenment and, and talked about what is truth. And they tried to get this definition of how we could know that we knew things. Well, uh, early 1900s, there was a group of philosophers who just got kind of tired of that. And they wanted to get a little sarcastic. And so they started to um, mess with those who really cared about truth. And the way that they would do it is they didn't care about truth itself. They just started to poke holes in what they believed just to play devil's advocate to be like, see, you don't really know truth. What you're really trying to do is you're trying to assert authority over people. You're more about power. And so postmodernism came about really in the 1950s is when it took uh, heavy root uh, through some French philosophers like Foucault and Derrida, and, um, or Derrida as some people say. But uh, ultimately, they stopped caring about the dynamic of truth. What they cared about was the dynamic of power. And so you'd still have people who were very scientific in the way that they would think. Uh, that came out of the Enlightenment. And so they would assert these claims based on their experiments or based on their thought experiments or what they wrote out and kind of debated and fleshed out. And they'd say, this is what we believe and this is why we know we know these things. And then you'd get the postmodernists who'd be like, okay, that's not true. All you are doing is you're just trying to assert your power over me. And so they didn't care about truth. They call that a meta-narrative. They would reject all meta-narratives so that the focus was no longer on truth. The focus was on how is this person trying to assert their dominance over me and how can I steal that dominance back for myself? Does that make sense? Are we following? I know that that's kind of a watered-down version, so if there's anybody who actually studied philosophy, don't at me, okay? We're just trying to make it simple because it's a five-minute nerd out. Calm down. So... uh, examples of how we see this at play. Think about movies. Think about the TV shows that you watch. This is where postmodernism is everywhere. 
And this is how you think. This is how I think because we've been raised in it. How many times is the bad guy somebody who works for the government? Or somebody who's like a rogue agent? Or like some person who is in some lettered agency within the government, right? Like how often do you watch something? Just, yes, anybody? Bingo. So postmodernism is trying to get you to see that power is bad. And we need to reject power so that we can become our best version of ourselves by overthrowing that power and becoming our own authority. Did I not just describe like at least 25% of the things that are on Netflix and Hulu and everything right now, that's most story arcs right now, is there's somebody who's in charge, who is corrupt, and corruption must be rooted out because this person is the one who realizes their truth, and as they assert that, they become uh, enlightened, right? Stop me if you've heard that before. It's all over the place. And in fact, like it's happening right now because I'm preaching a sermon to you, and I'm making a truth claim in this sermon. And so if in your mind you're immediately questioning what I say because you simply believe that I'm trying to manipulate you, that it's been put into you, that, that very thought has been put into you uh, by living as long as you have in a postmodern society. Just by being raised in this society, it's so easy for us to hear any person who brings a truth claim and want to reject it simply because they made it. It doesn't make much sense, and yet that's exactly what we do. Forget the fact that I love God's word. I love the scriptures. I love Jesus. He changed my life, and he has been there through me or for me through the darkest of nights. And because of my love for God's word, I study it, and I read it, and I read what nerdy people have written about it for decades and for centuries. And just I, I want to know these things, and I want to learn it well enough to translate it to something that I can pass along to people who don't know these things themselves but need to hear it. That's my take on all of that, that I love God's word so much, and I love you, all of you, so much that I want you to love God's word and to see the things that I've seen in it and to experience what I've seen in it. And yet, I don't always get that right, and Jack doesn't always get that right. We do our best, but we're still humans. We still make mistakes, and we're just relying on the Holy Spirit to translate that to your heart the way that you need it to be translated to your heart. And yet in our postmodern culture, we create this counterfeit of truth by convincing ourselves that we can define our own truth. Why? Because we want to validate our emotions. We want to validate our personal convictions and our feelings so that we can live under the illusion that we actually hold power over everything in our life and everything in our belief system. This is the problem that Paul is warning the church about in verse 10. The problem isn't that we need to understand the timing of Jesus' return. The problem is what Paul says pulls people into this deception. And it's the tendency of the human heart to not love the truth. But to instead find more enjoyment in unrighteousness. To find joy not in the God of truth but in the ways of lawlessness instead. And so Paul says in verses 11 and 12, God turns people over to these deceptions and it leads to their very condemnation. The man of lawlessness will create the great apostasy, the great falling away of the believers in the church. This rebellion will take place and he'll do it by making unrighteousness seem more pleasurable than the truth. 
Does that sound like something that we already see in our culture today? Absolutely. And so we have to be on guard. Look at verse 12 here. It says, so that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We've got to see this. The opposite of believing the truth is what Paul says. It's delighting in evil. And so this means that saving faith, faith that will endure to the end through affliction now and through the apostasy that is to come, the great falling away, it's not merely an accepting of the truth. Hear me on that. It's not an accepting of the truth. It's in a delighting in and a loving of the truth. Piper said this. He said, the longer you meditate on the writings of the Apostle Paul, the more clearly you see that genuine, deep spiritual experience depends on genuine, deep biblical knowledge. Things like faith and love and peace and joy, these precious subjective experiences of the heart, they depend on the mind's apprehension of objective biblical truth. Knowledge exists for the sake of love. And so how do we grow a love for the truth? First of all, we need to know the truth of God's word. We've got to know the truth of God's word. It's got to happen. I know it's tough to read the Bible sometimes. There are so many resources that can help you, and we would love to equip you with those things so that you can begin to read God's word and let it come alive to you and let it do for you what it's done for me. God has revealed much of his heart, his character, how he wants us to love him in the scriptures. It's not just a book that's full of ancient stories and letters to people. It still speaks to the very principles that we need today so that we can live a life that leads to human flourishing. And that's ultimately what we all want, isn't it? But it's not just enough to know the truth of God's word. Because again, knowledge doesn't exist for the sake of knowledge. Knowledge exists for the sake of love. And so we need to love the truth. And that's the man, Jesus Christ himself. John said, uh, or yeah, John 14, 6, Jesus said, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we need to know, we need to love, and cherish the gospel truth in such a way that we cannot help but love and cherish Jesus himself for all that he has done for us. And that's good news. That's the gospel. That's good news that was meant to be shared with all. That when we take this truth and live this truth out ourselves, it changes everything. It's what enables us to endure to the end. And so we want to take communion tonight so we can have a moment to remember Jesus Christ, the truth himself. Remembering what he did for us on the cross. To let it stir in our affections a love for him for what he has done for his church to present her as blameless, to present you as blameless before the Father if you've placed your hope in him. And so I want to invite the worship team to come up. Uh, they're going to get the music started. Um, but let's just take a few moments to pray together before we participate and take communion. Because the Bible uh, encourages us that before we take communion, we want to come to the table in a worthy manner. Because again, God has told us how he wants to be loved, how he wants us to know him through scripture. And we want to do that. And so he says to eat uh, and to participate at the table in a worthy manner. He wants us to come with a heart of repentance. And that's not something that we do in our church very often in a corporate way. But I just want us to take a few moments to pray. And you can just pray to yourself. 
But I want you to go through that process of asking the Lord to bring to your heart, what do you need to repent of? Repent simply means that you were going one direction and you completely turned around to go the other way. That you were doing something that you knew offended the heart of God and you want to go back the other way. That's it. We want to have that attitude that says, Jesus, the things you want, that's what I want. And so as they get the music started, I'm going to begin with just a a quick word of prayer. But we're just going to leave a couple minutes uh, uh, of silence so that you can pray, that you can repent. But here's the thing. We also want you to remember what Jesus did for you to forgive you of your sins. He went to the cross on our behalf. He took the wrath that God had for us and he absorbed it himself so that we wouldn't have to. And he gave us this relationship with the Father. He made a way for us to know God, to be known by God. And so we want to thank him for that too. So let's go through some healthy rhythms of repentance and thanksgiving before we uh, partake the elements. And you can do that uh, at your own leisure. And so God, tonight, we just want to thank you that uh, you have made the truth known to us. You sent it in the form of your son, Jesus. And he so clearly showed us the way to the Father. And so we want to be people who don't just know the truth. We want to be people who love the truth, who delight in the truth and take joy in it. Because that is where human flourishing happens. We want to see your word, which you call the truth. We want to see that as a place where life exists. That if we do these things and we put these things into practice, the way that you say that we should, that we can know the abundant life. We can know what the joyful life is, that no matter what happens in life around us, no matter what suffering we may go through, no matter how many times we hear the word cancer, no matter how many times we're told that we were a failure, that we didn't measure up, that we weren't enough, that we would cancel those words out and that we would know who we are in you. And because of who you said we are, we'd believe that We would find life there, and we would love you for it. Jesus, would you be our greatest joy tonight? And would that heart continue to carry us forward into this week, that when we wake up tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday before we come back here, that Jesus, you would have been our joy each and every day. And so we come to the table tonight to participate in communion, to remember what you did for us. Because we want to be a people who practice the doctrine the way that we're meant to, who hold fast to the hope we have in Jesus, the people who endure to the end, because all our hope, all of our faith, it's all in you, Jesus. And so would you move in this time as we remember what you did for us, would you bring to our hearts the things that we need to confess to you now? Would you let us live joyously under your forgiveness? And would you let us go out and live with victory the way that you have called us to bring this hope and this light that we have inside of us through your gospel to the people that are around us, Lord? So Holy Spirit, do the work that only you can do now. trust you at this time.
Yeah. 
think that's the beauty of what can hold us and all the moments and all the confusion of all the things. Great job with helping us unpack that, Lyle. I, I think, are we in the end days? I don't know. I'm with Jesus. That's the point. Stay close to him. Ride with him. He's got the truth. Um, I know people want to spin a lot of things, and that's why it's important to anchor ourselves to Scripture. So as Lyle said, just we want to encourage you. version is a great way to continue to stay in the Word and let the Word of God and God get a hold of your heart. Um, and that may be a new rhythm for some of you. But do you know version actually reads to you also? Like, you don't even have to read it. It'll read to you. And, and just invite you to maybe dip your toes in that. Invite you to be a part of that. Your e-group to be a part of that. Discipleship group to be a part of that. And so we, we love you enough to keep wanting to help with resources and tools and techniques and tips uh, to kind of help. And so just keep asking us. We want that to be something for you. So, again, thank you to all of you who call Elements home, uh, whether you're watching from your home or here in the house tonight. Uh, thanks for giving and partnering here. Uh, we do that in a different way. We don't pass a plate if you're new, uh, but we have giving boxes in the back. A lot of folks give online, which you could do through our app, or you can go on the website and do that. Uh, we believe in connecting in groups, that it's not good to live solo. And so we've got some different uh, e-groups all around town and some discipleship groups. If you're looking to go like in a micro group and want to dig deeper is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you can sign up for that out there. We've got the 10-minute party. So if you are new in the house and we have not met you yet, we would love the honor of giving you not only the best kettle corn this side of the Grand Canyon, but also kind of hearing your name and hearing your story and connecting you around here. Lyle and Karen will be back there. And then dinner tonight, we usually have a group of folks that go out to dinner. We're at Cereal Grillers, which is off of Speedway. Uh, like that way. Uh, just type it in. You, you have Google. Uh, so like, you'll find it. Uh, but we'd love to invite you to join a group of us there. If you need prayer tonight, I'll be down here. I'd love to pray with you. And uh, yeah, let me just kind of pray us out. So God, we thank you that no matter what the end holds, you hold the end. And so we stand in the fact of you, Jesus, the truth of you, Jesus, the love of you. Would you grow our heart's affection? and love for you. Would you help us to be people that reflect you to those around us where we live, work, and play everywhere we go, and that our depth of our love would grow week after week as we continue to take next steps with you. Pray for your blessing to be upon these gathered, those watching. Father, would you minister to their hearts in the special ways that only you can do in the ways that they need you to do. Would your activity flood their life this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We love you, friends.